Welcome back to the Healing Through History podcast. This is your host, Sean Bundarker. If you could have a superpower, what would it be? You've probably been asked this question hundreds of times, perhaps as an icebreaker at a club meeting or another social gathering, perhaps even as a boring interview question. And of course, people give all sorts of entertaining answers. Super strength, like Superman. Super speed, like The Flash. The mind-reading telepathic powers of Professor X. Wouldn't you love to know what goes on in the minds of people who like pineapple and pizza? Well, we all know it's a silly question, right? None of those kinds of powers exist in the real world. Well, maybe all except one, allegedly. American phrenologists essentially claimed to have the power to read the minds of patients. Phrenology was a pseudoscience that peaked in the antebellum era in America. The German physician, Franz Joseph Gall, first devised the field in the 1790s as craniology and then organology, referring to localized mental functions in different parts of the brain. And these different parts of the brain were known as organs back then. Gall conceived that the brain could be split into different regions characterized by 27 so-called faculties, such as conscientiousness or secretiveness. Gall then asserted that the skull's shape reflected the shape of the brain and such special regions. Thus, Gall's theory basically linked bumps on your head to mental characteristics. One of Gall's European colleagues, Johann Spurzheim, eventually reinvented the field as phrenology in the 1830s, and spread its ideology across lecture tours at prestigious American institutions like Yale and Harvard. The intellectual vanguard of America lapped up these teachings. Inspired by Spursheim's lectures, brothers Orson Fowler and Lorenzo Fowler assumed the mantle of leadership for the American phrenological movement. Along with Samuel Roberts Wells, the Fowler brothers established publishing companies all across America and England. Phrenology soon captured antebellum America's fascination, appearing in almanacs and even nationalistic texts. It was said that phrenologists could divine the futures of individuals and protect the country from criminals in the making. You could just imagine how much that captivated the public's fancy. Phrenology became the new astrology. Now, let me walk you through an example of a phrenological evaluation. In 1841, a church near Gainesville, Massachusetts, the whole congregation fell silent. A man of science was now entering the house of God. Two volunteers stepped forward as the man blindfolded himself before proceeding with his examinations. He caressed these men's bodies, running his hands up their spines and carefully tracing the outline of their skulls. His hand fixed on certain regions of the head, awing his clueless audience. Free from the constraints of his prejudiced human vision, his scientific knowledge would supposedly light the way to truth. He would divine the two volunteers' futures to assess their utility in American society. To much applaud from the congregation, the first man was deemed a harmonious, careful, upright man. Destiny and biology seemed to collaborate to bestow this upstanding man upon the town. However, these very forces seem to have conspired to create an altogether more sinister creation with the other volunteer. 
The second volunteer was determined to be too low in conscientiousness to be honest and just in his dealings, and too large in secretiveness to be open, frank, and truthful. These revelations shocked the congregation as the volunteers were relatives, sharing, quote-unquote, unblemished social reputations. Just as cryptically as the man of science entered the church, so he vanished after conveying his prophecies. Thus Nelson Sizer, a renowned American itinerant phrenologist, embarked again on his crusade as the interpreter of destiny and diagnoser of head bumps. Phrenology unfortunately offered the perfect tool for furthering scientific racism and confirming racial stereotypes. For years, craniometry, the measurements of skull sizes and certain angles, dominated images of social Darwinism and racial hierarchies. However, inconsistencies in these numerical results frustrated the scientists who maintained racial preconceptions and set out to confirm them. Craniometric techniques also required the brains of non-living human specimens most of the time. Phrenology offered a subjective, non-invasive approach with more fluidity in interpretation. From the perspective of the people, though, phrenology could settle questions about the allotment of freedom that divide the nation in the antebellum period. Throughout the rest of this episode, I'm going to pull from a popular phrenological text known as Uncle Sam's Recommendation of Phrenology to his millions of friends in the United States which was republished by the Fowler and Wells Company in 1842. The author of this text is Warren Burton, an American clergyman who ties phrenology to patriotism. Burton's novel illustrates how phrenology assuaged the rising self-doubts of antebellum society. As an American clergyman, Burton presents phrenology as a divinely ordained science, bestowed upon the people as a gift. Assuming the persona of Uncle Sam and a collection of letters in this novel, addressed Force of the Nation, Burton inspires his audience into assuming agency in their nation's matters. Unfortunately, to sinister ends. Though Burton claims that anyone is capable of lacking pro-social mental faculties, a very clear recurring theme seems to be colored skin. The classification of Americans with defective mental faculties, in this case, reinforced racial and other uh, cultural prejudices. Burton references the deficiency of moral and intellectual sensibility, specifically in racial minorities, as given. When discussing the reflective portion of the brain, a faculty crucial for making moral judgments, he claims that less civilized portions of mankind, referring to Native Americans and African slaves, are deficient in the reflective portions, as designated by phrenology. But as opposed to the incorrigible faculties of these populations, Burton claims that even deranged whites could be reformed through helping them exercise that reflective region. Burton also asserts that as white individuals age, you see a progressive improvement of the reflective faculty. That progressive improvement is not a trait he attributes to non-white populations. Another phrenologist at the time, Marvin Wheat even goes to say that the African brain never goes beyond that development in the Caucasian in boyhood. So this image particularly reinforced the infantilization of such populations as primitives and effectively justified white domination at the time. Thus, phrenological insights, especially those focused around this reflective faculty, supported key concepts 
and undergirded slavery and colonialism. In light of phrenology's role as a scientific justification of slavery, it's not surprising that Burton does propose one solution to the purported mental deficiencies of uh, blacks, paternalism. In one anecdote, he depicts an African-American girl tripping on ice and dropping a basket only for a white woman to later help her up and deliver the basket for her. Burton narrates how the white woman takes in the girl as a lifelong servant uh, and how it is astounding that, that the white woman lifted up, quote-unquote, lifted up the fallen of a despised race and helped bear her burden back to her hovel home. He later cites this feat as a result of the white woman's bump on her skull near the benevolence region. Now, Burton refrains from using the word slave in his entire novel, instead opting for the term long, lifelong servant, as if to suggest a voluntary decision. The term servant also suggests a mutual benefit in the arrangement, as the African girls should be grateful to be solely compensated with the gifts of white civilization in exchange for lifelong servitude. Burton also uses phrenology to sanction slavery as an act of benevolence, reflected in the benevolence region, and overall pro-social benefit, framing uh, the black girl as a responsibility and burden. Yet Burton intriguingly claims that abolitionists also have excessive protrusions in the benevolence region, to the point that their rational judgments could be compromised. He implies that freedom could do more harm uh, than good. And this is actually very resonant of a disorder that a contemporary pro-slavery physician, Dr. Samuel Cartwright, also conceived of, something known as drapetomania. The drapetomania was a mental disease that Cartwright diagnosed, diagnosed for slaves that attempted to escape their owners. With the classification of drapetomania, Cartwright essentially claimed that slaves were physically and mentally unable to handle freedom. He pathologized the idea of freedom. Phrenology similarly masquerade racial propaganda as objective scientific insights. The famous Amistad trials from 1840 to 1841, which charged kidnapped Africans who were being illegally sold as slaves for killing their Spanish captors, rocked the nation with questions about race and freedom for all. While abolitionists won the case, phrenological examiners analyzed the Amistad captives and profiled faults in mental faculties that supposedly made them prone to violence. They pathologized, again, the Amistad captives' desire for freedom and used their narrative as a case study for emancipation, concluding that emancipation would result in broad, widespread moral degeneration and the bloodshed of whites. Phrenologists even created wax life masks of the captives to put on display as a testament to this threat posed by emancipation. Beyond only constructing black-to-white gradations in morality and intelligence, scientific races, like phrenologists, could also use the field to target all their rivals, from racial minorities to even white abolitionists. As we discussed above, phrenologists claimed that abolitionists had excessive pathological representation of the benevolence faculty on their skulls. Now, historians have previously linked phrenology to scientific racism, but many neglect how the field specifically rose in the antebellum American period, 
immediately preceding the Civil War. And specifically arose in that period, despite chronology's worldwide use in the 1790s. In America, about to face its most deadly litmus test, phrenology seemed to offer a means to teach up divides with supposed objectivity. But in reality, these objective examinations were tainted by racial stereotypes and the structural injustices endemic in America. Phrenology is an under-discussed but important episode in the long tragic history of scientific racism. For the future physicians and scientists listening to this podcast, I acknowledge that the perversion of science to uphold racial hierarchies can be beyond uh, disheartening. My intention with this podcast is not to be nihilistic about the prospects of biomedical professions. I want this history to be a clarion call for a deeper evaluation of racial biases in scientific research. Consider the historical channels through which knowledge is produced. Consider the various actors and the biases they may hold. Consider social determinants and how forces of structural injustices may influence health outcome studies, for example. I believe there will always be hope to amend and heal the lapses of past scientific research as long as we learn from the history. Thanks for listening.